0: Far below the surface of a sub-zero planet, hidden in the freezing mists, something is watching. Somewhere in the depths of space, a horrific nightmare is about to become a reality. In Seminoid, afar from human birth.
1: back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and today we have a returning guest, someone who I only get to speak to about once a year. He is from a different country, which makes him suspect in many people's eyes, but I love him dearly. This is Adrian Smith. How are you
2: doing, Adrian? Hello, how are you? I am pretty good. How are things over on the aisle? Well, I mean, you know, without wanting to get political things are pretty terrible at the moment over here and i think that we might actually be about to go to war with america so um <laughs> you know this might be the last time we're allowed to talk to each other
1: you're right they may sever all ties yeah. clip the transatlantic cables do away with the internet all of the uh, the apocalyptic things that uh, some morons in power seem to think might be a good idea yeah
2: yeah but hey apart from that you know as long as you don't watch the news or look out your window uh life here is okay well that's 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 good to know i <laughs> suppose oh well what have you been up to lately my friend well the last thing so when when did i last talk to you i think we did this a year ago when we talked yeah. about lady frankenstein um so since then i've been working full-time uh, as a film lecturer so that's you know pretty much the dream job that's like doing a podcast every day so that's pretty good that um, does
1: sound uh, that does sound like a dream job you're right
2: yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah just this week i screened what we do in the shadows for my students so it's pretty good ah. fun really oh I,
1: I love the. i love the film love yeah. it dearly i still need to catch up with the television series which oh. i'm told is equally as fun
2: yeah I, I was skeptical but actually it's really good so uh it just goes to show Um, yeah definitely worth checking out last weekend I was in London um, there was a little film festival going on called Soho Agogo and they were screening films over the weekend that all had some connection to Soho which is an area of London where the film industry well I mean it still is to a certain extent but it used to be completely based there in Soho, all the film companies and the independent producers and everybody had an office in Soho But, of course, it was also full of strip bars and sex shops (laughs) and this kind of thing. So it was a very kind of interesting uh, mix of people. So anyway, so this festival has been going on. So I was there to do an introduction to a film called Secrets of a Windmill Girl, which is about the windmill theatre, and it was shot back in the 1960s. Uh, The film was made by Compton, who uh, some of your listeners may be aware of Compton. They were pretty big independent film uh company in the 60s and made loads of great stuff and hmm. um i mean this film is terrible by the way it's not one of their good ones <laughs> but it's okay i was about to yeah, ask but it's so. really interesting because it was shot in the actual windmill theater which was in britain uh it's a very famous theater where they used to put on a show every like shows all day every day and it's basically mainly dancing girls and it was the closest that a lot of men could ever get to actually seeing a naked woman in real life. Um, oh my! But the, the but the rules were that the women could p- appear nude on stage, but they couldn't move. So they would open really? the curtain. Yeah, they would. O- they would have to stand very still whilst music played, and then the curtains would close again. Um, and then some comedian would come on and do a little thing, and then the.
1: Wait, wait, let's look at that before the comedian. <laughs> That's the most
2: unnatural thing I can imagine. Well, the rules were set it, because basically because in Britain we're very, uh, you know, embarrassed about our bodies and things. <laughs> um,
1: about genitalia. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Of course. But
2: because statues are very often naked and they don't move and so people aren't offended by <laughs> statues in public. So the theory oh, was that you, as long as your women didn't move – then that was okay
1: so yes yeah, so okay it just got dumber yeah
2: that, that makes it dumber so oh my god the windmill theater um put on shows like that for about 30 years until eventually they went out of business in that they closed in the 60s um but they're an institution and everyone over here has heard of the windmill theater and there's even there was a, a hollywood movie was made about it a few years ago and there's a musical on the West End about it. So it was a big thing. Wow! But anyway, so when when the windmill went bust, Compton bought the theatre and converted it into a casino and a cinema. But before they did the conversion, they shot a film in it. And that is what this film is, Secrets of a Windmill Girl. So it's pretty interesting. And um, so I was there to introduce it. And then afterwards, we did a and a And a guy called David McGillivray was there and he he's a writer and a historian he wrote a really great book called doing rude things which is a history of the british sex film um uh-huh. but david mcgillivray also wrote two of norman j warren's films just to bring things full circle uh, um, okay good he also wrote some films for pete walker and uh yeah he's a very interesting guy so i got to chat to him on stage talking about this movie so uh that was like a dream, the you know dream come true for me to go to, to London to a film festival and be the person on the stage, doing the Q and A. That's uh, that's another thing on my bucket list.
1: Congratulations, man!
2: Yeah, so it's a shame that you know it was for a film that was rubbish, but it's it's interesting. It's a very interesting film to talk about, even though it's pretty tedious to watch. <laughs>
1: well that that happens more frequently than i would like to uh, i would like to imagine i just recently rewatched one of my um one of my favorites from the 1970s um the remake the 1978 version of invasion of the body snatchers which is a film that i do i do love i do think it's fantastic i love uh uh the first three adaptations i love all three of them quite quite a bit uh but um I do have to admit that this is the first time watching the 78 version of invasion of the body snatchers that I really felt like it needed to be about 10 minutes shorter than it is because there's this big middle section right past about the uh, 70 minute mark where there's, there are too many repetitions of being chased by the pod people. And it really started to feel too long. And, uh, I, I i i it's very strange i've never felt that way about that movie before and like i say it's far from a tedious film it's a very good movie but at the same time you know as you get older and rewatch movies it is it is interesting to note how your perceptions of them change
2: yeah i also think as we get older just our own awareness of time uh and wanting to not run out of it also changes <laughs> When you you know when you're younger, you've got all the time in the world, but uh, now every minute counts. So you're like looking at your watch, thinking, "Come on!" <laughs> I felt the same way. It's sacrilege to say, but I felt the same way about La Dolce Vita, ah, the yeah. Fellini film. I finally watched that for the first time earlier this year, and man, if he he could have cut an hour out of that film, and nobody would have complained. Yeah, I so, I, yeah, I know anyway. what you mean. Ten minutes here and there, that's fine, but some films really. Needs some serious editing
1: you know but i would say i would not say that about eight and a half uh which is also a long film but i feel Mm. that every scene that's in it has a purpose and since the film is essentially i mean there's no real plot in eight and a half and you're essentially just kind of wallowing in the joys of watching what this poor you know film director who's increasingly clueless about what the hell he's going to do and seeing how that mirrors what well we're talking about eight and a half now not the la, la dolce vita i, apo- I yeah. apologize
2: so <clears> that's no, right but they, you know they're similar the la dolce vita doesn't really have much of a plot either yeah yeah but um i could certainly have happily let them cut quite a lot out of that but um yeah but anyway but yeah i know what you mean about the i mean i think i can't remember how long it's been since i've seen that version of invasion of the body snatchers but uh, it is a great film, and I did mm-hmm. pick up the I picked up the Blu Ray relatively recently, so hopefully I'll get around to rewatching it soon. I've never seen the '90s one though.
1: Oh, really? It's much more pared down. It's uh, it's close to like 95 minutes long. Um, it gets to its points. It, 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 I think that maybe who, the people who made that may have felt similar to what i just said about the the 78 version because it wastes very little time there's lots of mood and atmosphere and it does you know do its slow build up to the reveal but it doesn't uh, play coy or uh pretend that there's you know some other thing happening for very long once things get going and the um of so in the in the 93 version there's a great economy of visuals in it in that it shows you I mean we we get these great shots of the pods being harvested. Uh, with no dialogue or anything like that, there's just these wonderful shots just to show you what is happening, without it necessarily being information that the characters in the film have or need. And it's just one of those. It's it's. Uh, I'd be curious to to see what you think of it because I like yeah. all three. I like all three of those adaptations quite a bit.
2: Uh, I notice you're deliberately missing out the Nicole Kidman one.
1: Oh God, that one's horrible, man. <laughs> that one <laughs> I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, just called Invasion. It's as if okay, so it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers '56, Invasion of the Body Snatchers '78, Body Snatchers is the name of the '93 version, and then they just go with oh, right. Invasion in the uh, when, oh. when did that one come out in the late '90s or early
2: 2000s? I can't remember. Oh, it's it's in the last ten years or so, isn't it? It's is that, older. I think, I think it's, it's older than 20... ten years. I think uh, okay. but it i mean so that means the ne- the next version just needs to be called of the <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly or or if they could get away with it snatchers i don't know well yeah but the uh the uh man yeah invasion the one with nicole kidman and and um
2: daniel craig daniel craig is
1: such a mess it's just a uh, honestly the stories behind the production on that film are much more interesting than anything that got on screen. So... Because you know, mm-hmm. the whole ending was reshot by the Wachowskis because the the producers felt that the ending that they had wasn't good enough. And so they literally brought in the Wachowski brothers to shoot an entire different ending. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is...
2: <laughs> none of this works. Yeah. I, That's ca- when you know you're in trouble.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, what, what's funny is that it has been so long since I've seen it. I didn't see... I, I saw it... I think I saw it theatrically... Um, because I'm, I'm crazy, but it doesn't matter <laughs> what it is, is I, <laughs> I'm curious now to go back and rewatch it again, just to see, um, if my memories of its total ineptness hold up. Um, yeah. because I mean, there is that desire to rewatch films that just don't work at all out of curiosity. Of course, I only feel this way about genre films because of course there's an inherent interest in playing you know seeing seeing people play with genre tropes and ideas and images but um i i don't know when i'll get around to that because god knows i don't own a copy of it
2: yeah and you've probably got a few other films in your queue
1: uh a few probably more than a few to be honest this being october i'm trying to trying to uh squeeze in as many cool little movies here and there as i can and i'm I have to say, I've been working far too much this month to to get very far with my desire to watch as many
2: horror films as I possibly can in the 31 days of Halloween, but... (sighs) Yeah, there's no way I'm going to manage 31, but uh, oh, I I've managed to get I've got a couple in it so far, and what I just started with my youngest son yesterday because he has been talking about wanting to watch the Mummy, the Tom Cruise one. Yeah. So I suggested that we do a Mummy Marathon or a Mummython if you if you like. <laughs> so we're do so last night we watched the um, 1932 The Mummy. Yeah. And and my son was really impressed with it. He really liked it. He was especially impressed with the cinematography. Oh, that's interesting, considering
1: uh, that it's, which was co- it's a pretty slow film. I mean, I love it, but it's pretty slow. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that a younger person is really pulled in by yeah. the same elements that well, pull
2: me in. I mean, he's already pretty cine-literate, I like to think. So, uh, so that definitely helps. And he was interested when I told him that the director was Carl Freund. Who was German, and he was the person who shot Metropolis. Yeah. So that sort of makes makes sense that that's why the mummy looks so good. But um, yeah, he was so impressed with it that I think he might actually dress as the Boris Karloff mummy for Halloween this year. So Ooh, that's an interesting. Uh, makeup. that, yeah, that's partly because we already own a fez. <laughs> so that we're halfway there, really. <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. Doesn't everyone but, own a fez? Um, no, well, exactly. So we're going to follow that up this weekend. Hopefully tomorrow morning, we're going to do the um, Hammer, the mummy. Oh, I
1: love that. And movie. That's actually my favorite yeah. mummy movie of all time. I think it's wonderful. It
2: is great. And I think he'll enjoy it. He's seen a couple of Hammer films before, so I, he's sort of primed for this stuff. And then we're going to follow that with the uh, Brendan Fraser, the mummy, which I'm not a fan of. Yeah, uh, uh, I quite enjoyed it. It's all right for what it I, is. I don't it's a little find, bit CGI heavy. Yeah. But it's well, okay. it's not
1: the CGI that's my problem with it. My problem is that none of the humor I find funny. Um, uh. Uh, I could predict literally everything that was going to happen on screen before it happened. <laughs> I saw it the night it yeah. premiered. On the Friday night it premiered. I sat there in the theater with a friend. And after about 20 minutes, I literally was just leaning over to him and going, this will happen next. And it would happen, oh. and then going. And I bet now, your
2: friend really had a great time that evening.
1: Oh no, no, he was already laughing and rolling his <laughs> eyes at the movie along with me, and so we started yeah, to. By enough. the end of the movie, we were just agog and competing with what stupid thing will happen next. Yeah, and uh, it was. I, I really don't like it. First of all, well, oh, well, I have to say this. I have to, I now know a little bit more background on how the film got made. The producer desperately wanted to to remake. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, that was really the goal. And when you see the oh. movie,
2: it's not that hard to figure well, yeah. out. He he basically did.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's and, and that was always my objection. Even in '99, is like, if you're if you want to remake Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't call it the Mummy, you scumbag. I mean, just stop trying to foist fa- you know foist off onto the public some something that's supposed to be a horror movie. This is not a horror movie. You're, it's an adventure yeah. film with a monster at its core, but. You don't even do that well. It's uh, I just freaking hate that movie.
2: Oh, well, we'll see how it goes. We're fo- we're going to then follow that with the with the Tom Cruise one, which I I've al- I've seen that already um, quite recently, and I actually I don't really understand quite why everybody was so down on it. I thought it was all right. What did you think? I
1: really enjoyed it. I don't think it's a great yeah. movie, but I think it's a damn solid movie, and I think that yeah. quite honestly, the reason that most people people were primed to hate it before they saw it because tom cruise tom cruise in a in in a it was supposed to be a horror movie and they want to make this big universe oh i hate it all. i mean people had decided they were going to hate it before the damn thing even came out it never it's i hate to say it this way but it never had a chance
2: no i do think that the casting was wrong though tom cruise was not the right person for that part uh he was at least 10 years too old for a start agreed um but I think, and it, because it was Tom Cruise, it was it kind of unbalanced the whole film. I think because it needed to be a bit more of an ensemble film, um, and it just didn't quite work. I thought, but as you know, but it was perfectly fine. And I'm looking forward to the Invisible Man. So am I, I, especially got, considering got the people behind potential. it. Yeah, well, yeah, Lee Wannell has directed it, mm-hmm. and um, I really love all the Insidious films and stuff. So. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I, you know, I'm quite keen to see what he's done with that. So I, I'm glad that it's got back on track because I thought after the outcry of The Mummy, they wouldn't bother making any more of these dark universe films.
1: Well, I hope that no matter what happens, I hope that Universal just keeps pressing forward, even if it's just yeah. individual films that have nothing to do with one another, which I, it's fine with me. I, I would yeah. I hope they would just continue to press forward because. No matter what, if you continue to make these movies, some of them are going to be, you know, better than others and some of them are going to eventually, you know, break through. And I think that that's I mean, that's just the way these things are. I I want more of these things and I don't really care what the general public and how they react to it. I don't care. I don't care.
2: And I really liked the fact that it was a female mummy this time. I thought that was really good.
1: It was wonderful, and I thought it was. A, it, I even, um, as as crazed as it is, I really enjoyed uh, the the hamminess of uh, Russell Crowe as uh, Doctor Jekyll. I was yeah. I was I, I had oh, a lot of fun with that.
2: Yeah, he was good. And I'm I was imagining when I was watching it, I thought of you straight away. I thought how pleased you must have been that they had zombie Knights Templars.
1: Oh I know it, I, I, there, there's so many unexpected little things in the movie which as I was as I walked out of the theater after w- w- when I saw it I thought <clears throat> if anybody gives this a tra- a chance if if you walk in there at all there's so much so much to enjoy in it but yeah. you know clearly that was not to be
2: yeah if only they could have put some of those knights on horses we would have <laughs> basically had had a blind dead moment it, uh, would have it was been pretty wonderful.
1: close it would have been so nice yeah. <laughs> but I tell you what, uh let's uh let's take a quick break here and then uh, you and I will come back and we will discuss uh the the subject that we're actually sitting down to discuss today. Oh yeah. Hold on folks, we're going to talk about a film from 1981, uh British film, which is of course why I'm talking to someone who uh you know is British. Uh <laughs> because otherwise I wouldn't be able to discuss it, right? Is that are, those are the rules? That's, That's right. I thought
2: that well, currently those are the rules yeah until things get much worse until,
1: the, yeah, until there's a break with the EU and then I can't I then I, I I think I'll be able to discuss European films but not those from Britain I'm confused I haven't read through the entire the entire paper so hold on uh, we'll yeah. be back in just a moment to discuss in Seminoid just now. Welcome to Good Beer Bad Movie Night, where each month we drink finely crafted brews while watching terrible films in order to see just how drunk you have to get to enjoy them. So tune in and join Troy. Killboy Kreitz. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Dave. I have the weirdest boner. And Pete. IPAs are ales, meaning they are bottom fermented. Excuse me, they are top fermented. I that up. (laughs) Try that again. (laughs) As we drag Kathleen. Hear me. Kicking and screaming through an alcohol-fueled podcast dedicated to movies of questionable quality and the frosty adult beverages that help make them tolerable. Good beer, bad movie night. Clearly it's the beer's fault. A spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. This is Report 105 from Zeno Archaeological Expedition, Team
0: 7. Documentation Officer Kate Carson reporting. The past two months of survey and research have resulted in the discovery of a vast tomb-like
2: complex. This structure was unmentioned in any report made by the previous and abandoned expedition to this planet. Entry to the tomb has now been made, and examination of the inner chambers may reveal vital information about the extinction of the previous race that inhabited this planet. Despite the planet's two sons, the surface temperature remains a constant 89 degrees below zero. However, life support systems and electrical installations in the underground headquarters are fully operational. Safety factor, 60%. Conditions, tolerable. Okay,
1: in Seminoid, 1981, directed by Norman J. Warren. Very interestingly, I've owned a copy of this movie for years because uh, quite some time ago I picked up the British dvd coffin box set from anchor bay uk which had i think four of norman j warren's horror films from the 1970s and 80s in it and uh and was in that that was my first uh chance to see that particular movie as well as actually i think almost all of the films in that set now the uh reason for uh bringing up in today is that a brand new blu-ray set has come out from indicator over in great britain uh it's a set called bloody terror the shocking cinema of norman j warren 1976 to 1987 and it includes five of his horror films uh or i guess his five horror films i guess that would be the better way to put it to be honest
2: yeah though yeah he all of those are his uh, that's his entire horror career right there
1: um it, it includes the films satan's slave prey terror in Seminoid and bloody new year. And, uh, I have, uh, uh now that, uh, just this, just this year, I finally got around to seeing bloody new year on a uh, blu-ray that got released over here in the States. Uh, and so I've seen all of those now. And I have to say, um, Inseminoid is the one that I like the least, but we'll get to that. Uh-huh. We'll get to that in a few <laughs> minutes. Um, okay. Uh, I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bury the lead on that one, but, uh, the, <laughs> the joys of, uh, the, the Norman J. Warren, f- uh, horror films are that they definitely have their own flavor. Now, the reason that Adrian is the perfect person to, uh, oh, I just looked on the back of the thing and realized that my indicator limited edition set is number 4,345 of 6,000. Ha. Huh.
2: Nice. there
1: nice nice to have that uh, that now that's burned into podcast history uh, yeah. <laughs> the joys of this set are are many and varied and a lot of those joys as far as I'm concerned come down to the fact that you Adrian were actually involved in this blu-ray set
2: yes I was invited to uh, to contribute uh, to the book that comes with it it's a really nice set. And um, they, as well as including all five of those films, they wanted to put in a book or rather because sometimes with their other releases, they've had booklets in each individual um, film. But this time they were doing the whole thing as one book. So there's an essay that I wrote that's in there, which is a kind of overview of all of the films with interview uh, sort of snippets of interviews that I've done with various people in them. And uh, including David McGillivray, who I mentioned earlier, because he wrote Satan's Slave and Terror. Uh, yeah, so I did that. And then the rest of the book is more sort of archival material for each film. The trouble with Norman is he will talk to anybody. <laughs> and so he's been interviewed. He's been interviewed a million times. So it's pretty hard to like publish any story about Norman that no one hasn't already heard. you know he will he goes to all the conventions and he's very approachable which is great obviously from a fan point of view but if you want to write about anything to do with him it's uh, a bit of a problem because everyone's heard it before (laughs) Uh, so but luckily i managed to track down a few people who have not really been interviewed before or spoken about these films before so there's a few snippets of uh, interviews in there that people won't have read anywhere else so that's something at least
1: Well, I I really enjoyed the book. I I enjoyed going through it for, um, not just for your contributions, but all those interviews are so, well, they're they're fascinating. And they've made me want to immediately dig back into his uh, earlier films, those earlier three films, especially uh, Satan's Slave, Prey, and Terror. Because I I enjoyed all of those films when I initially saw them, but it's been a long time since I've seen, um, especially Satan's Slave. I haven't seen that one in a long time. Yeah. But... The booklet is a the booklet that comes with the set is fantastic and really does have a lot of information. Um, I gotta say, I, lo- I love that they they divided it up and there's all this all this information on each individual film, and especially on in, with Inseminoid, I was very very happy, very happy that there was an essay delineating all of the very interesting bits from the novelization of Inseminoid. Right. Because that has been a book that I've been trying to get my hands on for years, I'm just not mm. willing to pay the obscene price that I would have to pay to get a copy. And now to have this to have this booklet as a bonus, uh, tell me all the all the adi- tell me about all the additions and changes and uh, rather odd sexual bizarreness that, yeah. <laughs> that got inserted into the novelization. I feel that now I don't have to seek that novelization out so no. much
2: because I now I didn't know realize what's included. I didn't realize that that book was worth money. I've got a copy. Is it quite hard to get one now? Then? Well, no, no. I can't find one in the states
1: for uh, okay. for anything. I mean, like, can't find one that you know is even on sale. And I can no. I can order one from. Uh, from from england from like a secondary seller you know it's long out of print of course it's ancient yeah but at the same time the shipping costs coupled with what they want to charge <laughs> me just makes me go eh, i can't really yeah i can't justify
2: what would be uh, 20 to 25 dollars for you know sure yeah well my my copy is signed by both norman and stephanie beecham
1: oh hold on to that that's great yeah. oh, I, I, <laughs> that's something else one of the Seeing uh, Stephanie Beecham, you know, interviewed uh, at length, apparently, and some of the extras on this Blu-ray was fantastic because, uh, I mean, everybody seems to have enjoyed, you know, as much as they could, considering the location shooting, uh, have enjoyed uh, making the movie. And uh, she has she has a lot of interesting stories. And and that's that is very fun. Um, The maybe we should tell people about the damn movie. Have you ever seen in Seminoid, dear listener? It is, well, I would uh, hope so. It's it's unique. Yes, you're probably going to want to, you know, see the movie before you listen to us. Get all the way through this thing because there are going to be a number of things that I don't think. Well, I don't think we could actually spoil um, no. aspects I mean, of this, this movie.
2: Yeah, this film goes where you expect it to go. So, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> there's no major, there's no big twist or anything like that, really. Uh, uh, no, that we, really. that we could accidentally give away. It's more well, sort of fun. The, the the fun is in the journey. I would say with this movie. So even if you heard somebody tell you what it's about, you could still watch it and have a great time. I think.
1: I I agree with that. Well, I have a I have a question. I mean, do you would you consider this to be just from your perspective? Do you consider it to be an alien ripoff? Because there are a number of people involved in making <laughs> it that want to claim that it is not,
2: and it just seems yeah. silly. Well. Well, Norman's always denied it and said that when they were making this film before Alien came out. So no one had seen Alien, no one knew what it was. So it is. But everyone it, knew the film was in production. There were. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem plausible. But they weren't. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like everybody was following everybody else in those days. They weren't all you know Norman wasn't following Ridley J. Scott on Twitter at that time or anything like that so <laughs> you, you know you were just doing your own thing and they were at different studios as well um, so I, I think it's pretty plausible that nobody really knew what was going on I mean I think I explained in the book that the, briefly the story was that Norman had got the funding in place to make a film and then the script fell through and he had a he had the sort of schedule locked into place and the money was available but he didn't have a script and he happened to mention this to his friend, Nick Maley. Uh, and Nick and Gloria Maley, Nick was a makeup artist, and he'd worked for Norman on Satan's Slave. And Gloria was an actress in Satan's Slave. And so Nick met her on the set. The first thing he had to do was to help clean all the fake blood off her in the bath at the end of a day shooting. <laughs> that was how he met his wife. And, and not long after Wedding yeah. Vows. So a few years later, Nick has got his own special effects studio. Um, and he, of course... I mean, Nick was partly responsible for building Yoda. He worked on, on yeah. the Star Wars films. and um, But anyway, he got chatting to Norman. Norman told him about this problem that he'd got. And so Nick went home that weekend with his wife and they wrote this film, or a version of this film, um, and gave it to Norman the next week. So unless... So if maybe Nick... Knew something about Alien, but I don't. I think it's quite plausible to accept that Norman and the producers and people were not particularly aware. And plus, nobody expected, not even Ridley Scott, I think, expected Alien to be the hit that it was. Right. Um, nobody. I think. No. I think people only started making Alien ripoffs on purpose when they saw how much money Alien was making. You know, I don't think people expected Alien to become this groundbreaking hit that would make everybody millions and get re-released every three years um, well
1: I will say that uh, actually Roger Corman did jump really quickly as soon as he knew as soon as he knew anything about Alien and the amount of money that was being spent on it by uh, 20th Century Fox uh, Corman did immediately jump to do at least one movie that could kind of ride its coattails because that's
2: what Corman was very
1: of, smart at doing yeah it yeah,
2: was, was that Galaxy of Terror yeah, or, yeah,
1: and he, of course, then produced several more after that,
2: but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, and in this film, I think this film is much closer to those than it is to Alien, actually.
1: Agreed, agreed. Actually, I would say that um, in a lot of ways, if you want to look at what might have been uh, a direct inspiration for the structure of things, it's a little closer to something that actually influenced Alien as well, which would be kind of uh, it, the terror from beyond space from the late 50s.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there's nothing's original to one degree or other. And it, but I think Norman is pretty tired of having to constantly defend the fact that this is not an alien ripoff, because to him it is. Well, I, I wouldn't want him to I defend think it. I think yeah. I think
1: that whether it's whether he considers it a ripoff or not, that's I don't consider that to be a damning yeah. phrase. I consider that to be quite well, yeah, wonderful sure. because uh quite i mean like i say the i look at alien which is one of my favorite horror films of all time and i can see it the terror from beyond space i can see bits pulled from mario bava's planet of the vampires i can see bits and pieces uh the ideas pulled from other places that came before and it's like that's sure. there's no there's no sin it i don't consider that a cinematic sin in any stretch of the imagination i think it's fantastic to do that mm. because you cre- everyone's creating new things out of old ideas and out of half remembered thoughts and they're yeah. co- you know they're cobbling things together from you know from everywhere everybody steals it depends on how well you steal that that actually yeah, that's it, true. It
2: shows your your talent and your skills the, um, because the script between Nick and Gloria writing the script and then starting shooting the script was rewritten um, by somebody else with Norman and quite a lot of stuff was changed and Nick was a bit unhappy about that And I, but then Nick was also contracted to do the special effects and the makeup on set so Nick was on set every day having to bite his tongue when he saw what they were doing with his script so that was, that was kind of tough for him I think um but he's—I mean—he's over it now. And then to go back to the book, <laughs> uh, to go back to the book, um, the book changed it even more. I mean, the book bears barely any resemblance to what Nick actually came up with. I think mean, the monster has, is like this giant two-penis thing running around raping everybody. Which I know, is, which is Is the insane. complete opposite of what was. I mean, it's, that's not even what's in the film, but it's even less is what was in his script. In his original script, the alien that is uncovered was a scientist and had gone into uh, kind of suspended animation and was now trying to help his race to survive. That was the idea. And that kind of got lost a bit in this film, but then obviously by the book itself, that was forgotten completely. (laughs) Norman had very little to do with the book um, as well, so that was really just its own thing. But, yeah, it's interesting that they've put that in uh, as a special special extra for people to make that comparison
1: that i that that made me so happy and then there's so many things within the the booklet at the, the book or booklet whatever that well god knows there's enough i don't know what the word count overall is but my oh. god there's a lot of information yeah. in this in this well, let,
2: yeah let's call it a book i think i think mine's about eight thousand words on its own but then with all the other stuff i'd definitely call it a book
1: <laughs> well how did you get uh, how did you get tapped to be involved in this project
2: well it's part of the ongoing saga which is uh 10 years ago i met norman and i interviewed him a couple of times uh for um well initially it was going to be for cinema retro magazine but then i was also at that time trying to think of something to write my master's thesis about so i had the idea to write it about norman so that's what led me to talk to him a couple of times and then i realized that he'd actually made other films everyone talks about these horror films but there are other films on his CV that never got mentioned so I thought it'd be interesting to write about those so I ended up writing about three of his non-horror films for my uh, masters so I then casually I should never have said it and I regret it to this day but I said oh I could probably just turn this into a book (laughs) I could use this (laughs) thesis as the start of a of a book seemed like it would be quite easy to just convert it into a book Uh, of course that was a massive mistake because it's become a bit of an epic task and I'm still not finished and it's changed beyond all recognition since then and none of that kind of academic stuff that I wrote or that analysis none of that's in anymore Um, and I teamed up with someone else who also wanted to write about Norman but he's really busy I'm really busy we've both got full-time jobs and families So it's been a bit of an ongoing problem. But I still, I've done a lot of interviews with people. Um, So I was able to draw on that for this book. Um, And I've done a lot of research. I've got a lot of archival research on Norman. And I've got a couple of publishers who are interested. And Norman keeps asking me about it. (laughs) Because it's been (laughs) 10 years. It's just embarrassing. So now that I finally got my PhD out of the way, which you know that was like writing a book in itself so that took yeah. up a lot of time Uh so finally I've got all my qualifications out of the way I've got nothing else to write apart from that now so I've just got to get that finished I'm aiming to get my um all the dra- full drafts of all my chapters done by the end of this year that's my goal I've got some leave that I can take from work and get it done hopefully so so, yeah, so anyway, that's why I got involved. So, I've interviewed a lot of these people. I've interviewed Nick Maley, for example. He now runs a Star Wars museum. Uh, I think it's on the island of St. Kitts in the Caribbean. Hmm. And uh, his, his visitors are mainly, they come in on cruise ships uh, and they come and visit wow. his Star Wars museum. So, that's quite interesting. You can follow him on Facebook and he's always posting photos of Yoda. Um, <laughs> So it was interesting to talk to him about that, and uh, yeah, I've spoken to various people over the years. Anyway, that's so uh, that's why I ended up doing this. The big book itself is still waiting for me to uh, to finish.
1: Well, uh, hopefully one day. I, I'm not going to pressure you or push you because God knows God knows you have enough <laughs> on their, n- enough on your plate as it stands. So uh, let's talk a little um, bit about Inseminoid. When did you first see it?
2: Um, I don't know. Probably I think it might have been with that. Coffin box set as well, like 10, 12 years ago. I may have seen it on TV. I can't actually remember. Oh, the uh,
1: the Anchor Bay set? Yeah.
2: I might have seen it. I might have recorded it from TV and had it on VHS before that. I'm not entirely sure. It was one of those films I was aware of growing up, but it's got a very iconic poster. Yeah. A somewhat
1: somewhat problematic poster, from what I'm told.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, potentially. Um, (laughs) And um, (laughs) it looks. It, it was one of those films that I just felt like it was too adult for me to see. Like mm. the poster made it very clear that I was not old enough to watch that film. There were some films in the <laughs> 80s that that were fine. And then there were other posters that you saw and, and I just definitely thought, nope. <laughs> and so this was one of those, a bit like there were other films around the same time that this, like Extro was another one. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of British alien sci-fi type movies. Right. And so I didn't watch it when I was young, like I could possibly have done. But yeah, so it probably you know in the last 15 years or so was probably the first time I saw it. But it was great to just finally just watch this uh, Blu-ray version and see how great it looks.
1: I am impressed with this Blu-ray. I have to say that I can't imagine the film looking looking any better considering the uh, the, uh, the some of the lighting s- uh, schemes that they were that they were using to shoot some of this stuff. The uh, the shots of the alien world with that red filter. They they that red filter makes things look sharp to begin with. And uh, on this HD disc, I mean, it, it, a lot of things really stand out.
2: Yeah. And of course there's a lot of darkness as well. And so when you try and blow that up, it gets a bit grainy and things. So yeah, I mean, this, I think they've done a 2K restoration and I can't imagine it ever looking better than this, but I've certainly seen it looking a lot worse than this. So it's pretty cool.
1: What was your first impression of InSeminoid after that first viewing?
2: Um, I was pleasantly surprised with it and I mean it's also it's very gory in places which is no surprise if you've seen any of Norman's other films Um, but yeah I really enjoyed it I think it's got a lot of energy to it and uh, it's quite creative Mm -hmm. in what it does so yeah I found it um, I've always enjoyed it since the first time I saw it It, and it's some great performances in here a lot of uh, very good screaming acting (laughs) Um, I do. Th- I do think there are some very
1: good performances in the movie. That's true. I think yeah. there's there's also at least one that I think is incredibly terrible. But we'll get to that.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, the part of the problem with the the, the, the characters beyond the main ones is that they're all a bit interchangeable, and it's quite hard to remember who is who yeah. in this film. There's a lot of people, and they don't really stand out particularly from each other, except for like two of them. Um, so when we're talking through it, we might find ourselves getting confused about who we're talking about.
1: <laughs> I've made I've made enough notes that I hope I'm able to keep them straight, but we'll see. Okay. After a very interesting uh, opening sequence, uh, I like the the uh, the credit sequence. It's it's uh, rather trippy and dreamy. I kind of like it. Uh, we are on a freezing planet, where a team of twelve Xeno Project. Archaeologists and scientists are excavating the ruins of an ancient civilization. A network of caves is found to contain wall markings and crystals of unknown origin. While investigating the caves, Dean White is caught in a mysterious explosion and left incapacitated. Deciphering the wall markings, Xenolinguist Mitch theorizes that the alien civilization was based on a concept of dualism, the planet orbits a binary star and seems to have been ruled by twins. So right there we have the film setting up. I mean, just in that description alone, if that's all you knew about the film before you sat down to watch it, you're thinking, wow, okay, there's some really interesting ideas here. First of all, I'm fascinated by the concept of uh, extraterrestrial you know, uh, uh, archaeology. I love the concept of... Finding a planet where civilization has you know died out and then excavating it and attempting to piece together the various things that you find to discover what that civilization or society may have been like. First of all, that's one of my favorite science fiction concepts all all the way back into novels i was one of my that was one of my favorite uh, parts of uh, the mystery at the, at the heart of babylon 5 in its first 3 seasons and things like that yeah and it's just one of those fantastic concepts that immediately get me interested
2: yeah and because it, it also brings this kind of film back to something like the mummy again it's archaeologists messing with things that they don't understand and awakening a long dormant uh malevolent power you know, they, right uh, they could have been digging in egypt and dug up a mummy that then made somebody pregnant you know it's like it's basically the same <laughs> it's not that far off being the same story but it is a good setup
1: a, a, mummy, a mummy pregnancy yeah.
2: oh my uh, uh it's a good setup yeah definitely
1: well the um Oh, w- once again, I can I, I, I'm trying to picture the actor that played Mitch, and I'm co- I'm completely lost. So your your prediction earlier is absolutely correct.
2: Um, yeah. Well, there, he he doesn't even have a photo on his IMDb page, so you've got no chance. Wow, that's insane. Okay. Well, yeah.
1: uh, well, the me- medical assistant Sharon discovers that the crystals are surrounded by by an energy field and deduces that a form of chemical intelligence controlled life on the planet. Now, I'm going to stop here <laughs> and point out that that is one of the moments in this movie where I can feel the script reaching for things and then just missing. Uh, that is one of the silliest lines. It's it's almost a complete non sequitur. It has absolutely no bearing on anything that happens after the line is said. Yeah. And it's completely batshit crazy that is first of all first they have had the they've had the crystals for at that point at most if you give the if you give them some generosity uh a couple of hours and she's deciding that these crystals
2: have an intelligence what the, how are you how are you deducing this what what well, she's put it in some special uh colored liquid and then swirled <laughs> it around in a glass <laughs> that's that's proper science
1: of course, of course, it is. How how foolish of me to think otherwise. Yes.
2: Come on. It's really funny because there's a couple of times later in the film where you're back in that lab and she's just there kind of poking these crystals in the water. Yes. And you're just like, oh, come on. Nobody cares about those anymore. We've all forgotten what they were. Well, I
1: know. And just it's, give up. It, it, it's something that's dropped. But but the film tries a, a, gives it a few attempts yeah. gives a few attempts to like hang on to the crystals as some kind of plot point. And it's like no, 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 the crystals don't mean shit. We just need to move on. Yeah,
2: uh, I mean if if they if there was a, what they should have done was found a way to bring the crystals back into the way that you defeat the the you know defeat the alien in the end,
1: which if, would have been that, logical. Would
2: have, that would have been a great idea. Yeah. You're right. That, that would have worked then. But yeah, you're right. It's point. They're pointless. I mean, if we're going to pick apart the science of this film, however, fundamentally, if a planet has got two suns, shouldn't it be too hot rather than too cold?
1: Well, actually, it would depend on how far it is from those suns. And that's, you know, that's simple celestial mechanics. But at the same time, they don't do anything with the fact that it's a binary star, they don't even do the, yeah. the the thing that I would consider to be fun, which is to when they're outside, you know, in their environment suits. They don't even do that wonderful thing, which would be to pointedly have two sets of shadows and make reference yeah. to it to give it to give it an even further alien vibe.
2: Yeah. I mean, I suppose the only real reference we get to that again is the fact that later in the film we are we are given um, alien twins.
1: Yes. And that's really the only, you're right, that really is the yeah. only, you know, carry through on that idea.
2: And I suppose in the in the novelization, the alien does have two penises.
1: <laughs> Which, of course, would be, you know, I hadn't made that connection to the novelization idea until now, but you're right. That does, that does, that is a good parallel. That's good.
2: Yeah. But yeah, all this, this great kind of scientific info dump at the beginning is completely pointless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after about ten minutes, that it's never referred to again, and they also forget all about the archaeology and about the ancient civilization. Well, there is a brief mention later on when there is an earthquake, but effectively, what you know, all of that's lost. Yeah, it's, it's thrown it's yeah. thrown
1: out the door because the film has the film really is not focused on that. And if you examine, you are right to if you examine it very closely, you realize, or even not very closely, you realize, oh well, that was just filler. That's all that was.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's sad because that was probably it probably was all there in the proper script. But they cut so much out of it, including characterization and uh, science and (laughs) all, all the stuff that would have made it more consistent. They kind of got rid of because they basically just wanted to cut to the chase.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little while because there's some interesting stories there. Okay. Uh, a character named Ricky Williams, who I can once again, not picture at all, is compelled to re-enter the caves when a crystal sample begins to pulsate and the intelligence takes control of him through a wound on his arm. Well, wouldn't that be the guy who, who was attacked? No, I guess not. Anyway, uh, in his madness, he throws Gail into a pile of twisted metal, damaging her environment suit and trapping her foot. Desperate oh, to yeah. yeah, yeah, desperate to free herself, Gail removes her helmet and tries to amputate her foot with a chainsaw, but instead freezes to death mid-cut. Documentation. Oh well, let's stop there for just a second because uh,
2: <laughs> there's quite a lot there.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. First of all, now we have um, this fellow being controlled or at least uh, compelled to do something that he definitely should not be doing. And yeah. and evidencing some incredibly ultra-human strength. He's, some of the things that they have him doing during this escape attempt is a bit more than you would expect. But at the same time, when Gail is uh, thrown into that pile of twisted metal, uh, you know, damaging her suit, the, the whole thing with her foot being trapped, um, as well as I think part of that scene is played... Uh, by the actor who's talking to her trying to calm her down and walk her through saving herself, yeah. that actor does a pretty darn good job. I thought uh, Not that the actress with her foot trapped doesn't do a good job it's just that what she 's required to do is is you know fake slicing off her own arm with a with a, a hedge trimmer
2: yeah
1: and the, the 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 sequence works pretty effectively except that I just kept thinking why don't you slide your foot forward just a little bit and it'll come right out of there.
2: yeah Yeah, and if she's got something that's powerful enough to cut through bone presumably it could cut cut some metal a bit
1: that's kind of where i was about to go which is why not just why not just do that
2: (laughs) yeah and and, what's also interesting is that this whatever it is that's happened to these people they can't become possessed or something and it just makes them want to run around and kill people and again that's not really explained why why that is and maybe we... Why they would want to do yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Why, why would this intelligence want them to kill each other? It doesn't make sense. It definitely it definitely, would have a better shot at survival if it sure. had more people maybe to impregnate.
2: Maybe they needed a bit more in the archaeology stuff about discovering that this ancient race was actually, like, just saying, oh, they were really violent and they killed each other. Something like that would then make sense as to why you've woken up some ancient evil. But as it is, they just kind of go mad and start killing... Uh, each other for no particular reason
1: (laughs) like they're in some nonsensical horror film it's weird Yep. (laughs) well the i will say that another of the tidbits from the novelization is that it's not a uh, a bone saw or a hedge clipper or anything like that that she's dealing with out there Uh, in the novel or novelization i should say she's actually got some kind of laser pistol that she's using on her foot which uh which is all well and good except that once again that would be something that i would say well why not just blast you know cut through the damn metal that's holding her foot in place i mean it seems like a lot lot more logical if you've got some kind of gun so that's you know point to the film slightly over the novelization at that point uh you know the the novelization eventually wins just by having a double penis monster but hey you know that's just me yeah uh (laughs) I'm a sick, sick man. Uh, okay, now documentation officer Kate Carson shoots Ricky with a harpoon gun before he opens both airlock doors and renders the air inside the base unbreathable. I did enjoy the idea of setting up uh, someone who is there almost, at first I thought she was perhaps some kind of news reporter, but then when she's officially the documentation Officer, the person who's in charge of making sure that all of this stuff gets recorded, I thought that was rather ingenious. I thought that yeah. was an actual good idea that I think is taken from actual archaeological digs. Uh, as as the twentieth century archaeological digs kind of moved on, and they became, you know, it became evident that the more you documented this stuff, the the better the um, the eventual uh, setup within the museums were going to be. They they started doing that, and I think that carrying that over into this extraterrestrial archaeology is a really brilliant idea, and one that works very effectively because it allows you a very smart way to do information dumps that don't that that don't have to be wedged into the dialogue in some kind of artificial manner. This woman is recording all this for a specific purpose, and once that's made clear, it's actually pretty effective.
2: Yeah, it's just like uh, Captain Kirk doing his ship's logs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Only only kind of more interesting because you actually have someone being yeah. interviewed, which is cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was good. And it also gave, because again, the, the problem with so many of these characters is that they're all interchangeable. Or at least Stephanie Beecham, you kind of latch onto her character pretty quickly because she has something specific that she's doing. Right. And so you kind of get to know her quite quickly, which is good.
1: Now, after the burial of Ricky and Gail, Mitch and Sandy. Now, Sandy is Judy Geeson who's kind of the star of the picture to a large degree
2: eventually she's in the background for quite a while but yeah eventually 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 she's
1: the star of the picture yeah
2: um yeah mitch and sandy return to the
1: caves to collect more crystals a monstrous creature appears and dismembers mitch before raping sandy now let's think this through for just a second a lot of controversies swirled over the around this film because of this sequence with with uh, Sandy Gudzieson uh, being um, attacked by this monster and inseminated, hence the title. And the question I
2: have is, is that is that what it means? I've only just <laughs> <laughs> now I get
1: it. Well, hold on a minute. Let's let's take <laughs> let's take note of the fact that in a lot of places this movie was released under the title Horror Planet.
2: Yeah, which is one of that was because they felt the American distributors felt that American audiences wouldn't understand in Seminoid. And and we just think it must be a foreign film (laughs) or something.
1: And let's be honest. I'm an American and I'm pretty sure that they were right. I'm pretty sure that most of the American (laughs) public would have not had the first damn clue what that even related to. So calling it Horror Planet was probably a smarter move here in the States I don't yeah. mean to call my own countrymen stupid, but they are. <laughs> they really, really are. Uh, anything that confuses them the slightest bit, especially in the entertainment field, and they're just going to wander off into a field and stare at tree bark. So you gotta, you got to right. be careful with them. Okay. Uh, but the, the, the quote-unquote rape scene. Now, there are a lot of things I would call this scene— and, and there are certainly images within this scene that would you know, lend it to being called a rape sequence. But in the movie itself, the novelization being a very different thing, I don't think that there's an actual, you know, alien penetrating a, a human female with part of its body. It seems to be being done in a mechanical fashion, in some kind of, how to describe it, somewhat... Uh, surgical way as if it were being a medical procedure instead of something sexual. And so not that that's not in and of itself rape, but I think that that calling it rape colors the, your impressions of what's going on in such a way that it really becomes difficult to talk about the sequence without, you know, hedging your bets on what's actually being shown because it's actually a pretty trippy sequence when you watch it from beginning to end. Um, they're, a couple of points in this movie, and this rape scene being the first, where there are all these images being thrown at you, and they're the, they're the she's having what are clearly hallucinations because she is actually imagining the the, the doctor character there with a needle, uh, doing something to her during this sequence, which he definitely is not. So or is he? Well, okay. Well, that, that's where we get to <laughs> the fact that he, if if he were. Shouldn't they? Shouldn't there have been a much stronger attempt somewhere else in the movie to give us, or did I miss something? Is there a stronger attempt within the body of the film elsewhere to show us some kind of uh, evil machinations on the part of the Doctor character?
2: Well, I don't know. Let's so just to break it. Let's break it down a bit. So I guess in the original script. Um, this was definitely an artificial insemination process right which would make sense that it's a glass tube that is being used and it's not the because if you look at the alien's body you know i think if it was using its own appendage it wouldn't be a transparent glass tube (laughs) it would be it would be more in keeping with the rest of its body
1: it would look like, r- you know, r- wrinkly mummy flesh, yes. Yeah, it
2: looks like E.T. has been uh, left out in the sun to dry <laughs> uh, f- for a while. Um, for a while, yes. So, yeah, it, and also she's lying on, because the, the whole sequence is suddenly we're in some kind of laboratory, and she's lying on, I think what's basically a sunbed, but it's like a glass bed of um, of, of fluorescent tubes yeah and she's naked and it's all like very sterile and she's given an injection first to um sedate her in some way so it's all kind of there if you know going in that this alien is supposed to be a scientist who's trying to uh restore his race he's the last of his kind he's been in artificial um deep freeze and now he's been woken up and all of that so if they could have made that clearer in the film i think people would have felt a bit differently about it but if you kind of if you have that in mind as you're watching it makes a lot more sense that that is what is going on and that it's not um sexual assault as such it, it is a it's an artificial insemination by a alien scientist now obviously the film can still be accused of being exploitative and all of that kind of thing she is naked oh uh, certainly
1: of course it's definitely all an exploitation thing. film let's not let's but, not hedge any bets there yeah
2: what's interesting is that on the, the anchor bay dvd there was an interview with judy geeson where she claimed that it was a body double but that is just isn't true oh that's definitely <laughs> so def- not true yeah yeah it's definitely her but um so but yeah but what's interesting is we see the doctor So she could be hallucinating. The doctor seems to give her an injection. And that may or may not be true. But I I think, again, coming back to the is or isn't this an alien ripoff, if the the doctor could be, um, maybe he secretly wants to make sure that they can bring back whatever it is that they found. And so he is involved in this process somehow. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Perhaps I think it's more likely to be a hallucination, but it's a pretty specific hallucination to have. Yes, yes, it is. If and that's- it's not, if it's not true, because then later in the film he goes to give her an injection again, and she's afraid of him. Uh, so it, it it would sort of make sense if if it was all part of the experience. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's. Like I say, I very much prefer the idea. Not that the film does this, unfortunately, but I very much like the idea. Although you're you're right, it would make it much more of an alien ripoff if the doctor somehow somehow was involved in some kind of collusion with these with these alien creatures and was helping them to inseminate Sandy's characters, you know, Sandy, so that she. Uh, would be able to give birth to these aliens and he was doing this because he considered, you know, he was essentially an evil scumbag and thought that her life was worth giving up and even everybody else's lives were were worth giving up to get a, you know, live aliens from this long dead planet to talk to, to, you know, rebuild their society, to at least communicate with in some fashion. That is a really interesting road to go down for a science fiction horror film. Uh, The film doesn't do that. And and I have to say it's rather frustrating to have that dangled in front of me and then not be true. Uh, Because the film never really goes down that road at all. It does not appear to be something that they – well, I'll say this. I don't know if it was ever in a draft of the script. I would love to know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But it's it's odd that he's... Because, again, it's like the, the film keeps doing these things and then forgetting about them to a certain degree or not really explaining them. Yeah. So he's he's just there for no particular reason other than for her to then have a flashback about it later. But it still yeah. doesn't really make sense. But Now, here's the thing.
1: Um, I can posit a very interesting variation on this film where the doctor has somehow earlier before this whole film begins has managed to get his hands on some of these crystals has been able to has been able to carefully and secretly experiment on them has managed to perhaps in some way be taken over by an alien intelligence and therefore by the time we see him in the movie he is operating at their behest and therefore everything that he does within the movie once you find this out is all pointing in the direction of attempting to get these alien creatures birthed in a human body. That to me would be phenomenally interesting. That is a much more interesting story than what we end up with. And it's, it's frustrating to have those threads dangled there and them to not be what actually happens. Because if, if, if I'm considering a, a better plot line for your movie while I'm watching your movie, (laughs) <laughs> that's, a bad I- that's a bad
2: idea <laughs> yeah that's not a good sign yeah but I mean it's unfortunate I mean even on just looking at the IMDB um, in it's in the summary of the plot it says that she is attacked and raped and impregnated but I really I mean I just don't see it like that even before I knew the story about the original script I assumed that it was an artificial insemination thing anyway and the film's yeah. called inseminoid you know <laughs> which uh there's this idea of insemination and um so for me that kind of that's fairly clear but anyway
1: okay well um back to the plot synopsis sandy is retrieved from the caves by the rest of the team and treated by the team's dr carl who discovers that the rape has triggered an accelerated pregnancy when further explosion well, we should mention also by the way that this pregnancy should not be possible she should not be able to be pregnant because uh, everyone while they're uh, on this on this trip on this archaeological dig which would be a very smart thing everyone is treated so that they can't actually reproduce because no one wants you know that that, that would be a massive complication both wow. in travel and being on an alien planet which you know yeah. makes quite a bit of sense so when she turns up and is pregnant Everybody
2: knows immediately
1: this is something's very very wrong here.
2: So, this also makes space exploration basically like spring break.
1: Yes, because there are no consequences whatsoever. Everyone all, everyone's been yeah. tested, so you definitely know there are no STDs, and you can't get so, pregnant. So party.
2: Yeah, away you go. But again, you see that Wikipedia description is is kind of disingenuous. Um, he's discovered that she's got this accelerated pregnancy after being raped. Well. They don't know that she was raped, so he hasn't discovered that. Right. Um, he's found that she's two months pregnant, but he doesn't know that that's accelerated. Not yet. He just knows that it shouldn't be possible because of the medication that she was on. But, you know, medication can go wrong. So they know that she's pregnant, but that's... So, yeah, that's not... It's not like, oh, look, she's been impregnated and now she's two months pregnant. They don't know that. They just know that she's had a traumatic experience.
1: Right. Now, the next line in the plot synopsis is when is when further explosions block off the caves, the survivors are left with nothing to do but wait for the arrival of a rescue shuttle. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, a number of the explosions in the film are being, you know, later on, are being done by Judy Gison uh, as she attempts to, you know, control and uh, uh, kill the remaining cast members. Uh, but I have to admit, They never, ever, we never know why the initial explosion at the beginning of the film happens. No one seems very curious about why there was an explosion in the cave system. And there are a couple of explosions before the, you know, explosive charges are being used specifically to blow open doors and to bring down walls and things like that, where no one seems at all perturbed that, you know, there's just random shit blowing up. And, um, it's a, it's it's a little odd. It it feels once again as if things are just being left out. And of course, the more you know about the production, you know that's true. The the earthquakes and explosions, the 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 explosion at the beginning at the, the beginning that sets all this up and gets those crystals embedded in the fell's hands. It's like there's never an explanation for that explosion or a couple of the other explosions later on in the movie. Once they start ex- setting explosive charges, that's a different thing. But I, I have no idea why there isn't more interest in why that explosion happened at the beginning of the movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, are, are they? Is it a volcanic planet? Is it unstable? Because when we get this earthquake later on, whether the caves get covered up where they were doing all their archaeological digging, they keep cutting back to Sandy almost as if she's willing this stuff with her mind, which I suppose is possible, but strange. I don't know. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit. Have you ever seen that film, The Medusa Touch? Yeah. With Richard Burton. Yeah, it's been a long time, but yeah. The bit at the end, well, like where he's willing the um, Westminster Abbey to fall down. It was kind of a bit (laughs) like that. Like she's mentally forcing this earthquake to happen, but but yeah, again, doesn't really make a lot of sense.
1: Well, at this point in the movie, the intelligence, and I'm putting that in quotes at this point. The intelligence takes control of Sandy. She stabs Barbara to death with a pair of scissors and then mutilates Dean and the remains of Mitch, drinking their blood, which is a very odd sequence.
2: Yeah, and it's a shame. I mean, it's worth mentioning Barbara is played by Victoria Tennant. Yes, who's absolutely
1: lovely in this and in everything she's ever been in. But she's given really very little to do. I know. For such a good actress, it's so strange to see her in this, you know, which is, which is, it's a fairly early role for her. Yeah. Um, The first time she was, the first time I saw her in anything was in the Steve Martin movie, L.A. Story. And it's, it's so weird to see her in this because she's still that, you know, beautiful, attractive, talented woman who gets killed by a pair of scissors. So. Yeah, it's weird. not not that not that she gets killed by a pair of scissors in L.A. story. That would be really strange.
2: But <laughs> it would be different. But, yeah, all she all her character really does is say it's you know, it's, it's like, oh, I can't wait to go home. And you're just thinking, well, you're dead. And then she, uh, and then she <laughs> is dead. So, yeah, a bit of a wasted, uh yeah, wasted character, unfortunately. But she's just there. Most of these people are just there to be killed.
1: Yeah, this is, in a lot of ways, a body count film. This is a slasher by another name. So,
2: Well, yes. Yeah, quite. But, yeah, so she's dead, and um, Sandy is a full-blown psycho.
1: Yeah, at this point, the rest of the team take refuge in the control room as Sandy uses explosives to destroy the base's transmitter. Uh, when her mental imbalance appears to correct itself, in other words, she seems to kind of come around and is herself again, Carl, uh, Sharon, and Commander Holly McKay attempt to sedate her. However, Sandy's madness returns, and Holly and Carl are killed in an accident with heat sealing machines. Um, whereupon, Sandy disembowels the corpses. Uh, this is where the gore really yeah. the gore really kicks into gear, and this is uh, this is kind of where I think the movie gets its reputation in a lot of ways beyond the insemination sequence, which is of course unforgettable once you've seen it. But they really ramp up the gore. This is in a lot of ways, even more so than other Norman J. Warren films. This one's kind of a showcase for practical, gory special effects.
2: Yeah, and these were all being done by Nick Mailey. Yeah, he, that was one of his specialties, was being able to make people look properly injured. There's a great bit later on when Mark um, when Sandy bites Mark's leg, and then he's kind of hobbling around bleeding out of his leg and there's all kind of bits sticking out and stuff and that's that's classic nick Maley, i would say
1: <laughs> well actually i think the the most the, the physical gore piece that i think is most impressive to me and i'm i'm sure i can figure out if i paid attention how they did it but it's later on when she's when someone is walking through the room where the doctor the carl character is laid out on the on the floor dead and and his, uh, ch- his uh, stomach cavity has been opened and, you know, there's blood and gore all over the place. It looks very realistic. And the only thing I can assume is that, like, the lower part of his body is fake and that his actual body is underneath the floor somehow. But it's very well
2: done. Yeah, well, I mean, that's possible. Um, some of the film was shot in a studio. So it's possible that they could have done that. I mean, if they were doing that in the caves, it's unlikely that they'd have had the space (laughs) to get under the floor. But that uh, was one of
1: the that was one of the funny stories from uh, the extras was finding out that that sequence where they're all huddled together in the control room. uh, That was the some of the final stuff they were shooting on the, you know, in the studio and they had run out of money. And so the reason it shot the way it is, just this above, you know, this uh, shot from above looking down on all the characters in a single shot. Is that if he'd moved the camera the slightest bit to the left, the right, or da- up or down, you'd have seen that there was no set.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, I think they just used sort of black velvet drapes in the background because yeah. everything's just completely black. Uh, there's no walls, no light, nothing. It's just black, and then some TVs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, and some shelving, and that's about it. It works. Oh, it worked! It worked. Yeah. It, it certainly gets across the point. And at that point, at that point in the movie, I'm expe- I completely accepted that choice of a of a camera shot because it feels as if it's a, it's a choice rather than something they're being forced into because it changes up yeah. the way we've been looking at all the, all this stuff, and it and it gets everything in one shot. And of course, it's it's even if you had you know a, a decent set, it would be a good way to. Um, do this scene faster with an economy of time because you're, you're able to get everyone delivering their dialogue in a single shot instead of doing multiple camera setups. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, Norman was very good at that. He was very experienced at that already. And he used the same set designer uh, on all his films. Hayden Pierce was a genius. Yeah. And Hayden Pierce had worked with him right since his very first movie. And he could, he could build sets out of thin air uh, he was incredible and everyone I spoke to has got great stories about Hayden how creative he was, how he could just come up with stuff and obviously that's, that set in the caves um, is made mostly made of wood and the wood kept warping in the cave so doors kept buckling and not being able to open or not being able to close properly and he was forever having to shave bits off the doors to get them to shut And just, <laughs> it was constant. he was there on set every day either building bits of set or reappropriating bits of set or just uh fixing the set uh yeah he was an amazing designer so to be able to do that one shot like you were just saying that's a real testament to to him he would come up with a set that you could use for one shot he wouldn't he wouldn't build stuff that you didn't need he would only build what was definitely needed for the shots you know he was he didn't waste any money he was really good at what he did
1: well, out of curiosity, this this was shot, most of the, the shooting of this movie was at uh, Chislehurst Caves. Yep. Have you ever yep. been there?
2: I have, yeah. Uh, it's quite fun to go and walk around in those caves. They are just south of London. And uh, back in the 60s, they were a really popular place for young people to go and hang out. And bands would play there, like Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones and all these people would go and play in the caves. Um, and oh. during the war, the caves were used for people to hide in during the Blitz. So they've got a, quite an interesting history. Uh, Doctor Who was shot in those caves as well. Yeah. Um, but they're not natural caves, and you can kind of tell. And again, this is something they could have worked into the script a bit more. But they, they're mines basically. So all of those tunnels are dug out of the ca- of the uh, the caves. They're not. It's limestone, and it's all been dug through. That's why the floors are so smooth and there's chisel marks on the walls and stuff but uh that's not really mentioned in the film that the that all of those caves could be part of this complex of these aliens or something
1: and that's just another example of what i would consider to be a missed opportunity at script level and you know once you know you're going to use that location to just immediately start building in uh comments and pieces of dialogue and detail within the story itself to take advantage of that location. It just—it seems like such a shame. There, there. I know everything was rushed. I mean, they—they they had uh, Warren had a bigger budget on this than he ever had on any other film. But at the same yeah. time, the rush production shows through in so many ways because just having had another couple of months of pre-production to rethink and rewrite would have would have I think probably added a lot of wonderful stuff to this because. These are just, these are just obvious ideas once you have that location and 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 to be able to build upon what's already there, and it's just a shame that you know the the time considerations are what are what presses everything. Yeah. Film that's that, that's something that you hear from a lot of filmmakers all the time. Anybody involved in making movies is that. It's not always the budget that's the problem. It's that you only have this much time. Yeah. You know, you could have had 10 times the budget, but if you still had only this amount of time, it doesn't matter because you don't have the the ability to, on you know, on the spur of the moment, go, oh, wait a minute, what a better idea it would be if we did X instead of Y. It's too late. You don't have the time. You've got to shoot it the way it's on the page and
2: just move on. Yeah, and possibly cut some pages out along the way if you're... Uh getting behind schedule so well yeah. that
1: yeah that was very interesting to hear from uh, warren himself talking about the movie is that one scene that i thought was especially on the blu-ray i don't remember how this would have, how this looked on the old dvd but on this blu-ray there's a scene that warren points out uh there was this chase sequence within the caves between two characters and it's represented in the movie by just a single scene because they had to just eliminate three pages of script, <laughs> and when, when, I was more impressed with that scene after hearing that. Because the way they shoot it, um, especially on this you know high def presentation, what you can see is that there's a there's just enough light within the scene for the audience to see where the person being chased is hiding off to the you know off to the right of yeah. the uh, screen, while the person looking for them doesn't have the opportunity to see them because of the way the light is and then moves on out of frame to the to the left. It was kind of fascinating to to find out that that was just a workaround for having yeah. to speed things up.
2: Yeah, well, Norman's very good at that I mean, because all of his films have been made at similar, similar budget restraints and similar time restraints. So, uh, I mean, by this point, he'd been making, his first feature was in 1967. So he'd been making feature films for over 10 years. And uh, so, yeah, he knew what he was doing. Um, but it was, those caves, because they, they're miles, there's miles and miles and miles of caves, and where they were filming, they're like about a mile, two miles in, and so if you imagine, they've got to have all the cables going in from their lighting trucks and all that sort of stuff, and yeah. for the actors and the, the crew and everybody, by the time they get into the set, if they break for lunch or anything, they're not going to walk all the way back out, and if they need to go to the toilet, they're not going to walk all the way back out again because it's so far. So they basically just bunkered down in these caves and would just go in first thing in the morning, eat in there, make up in there, toilets in there, everything, and then come out again at the end of the day. And they're really cold in those caves as well. So yeah. beto- I mean, in this film, they're all like walking around in t-shirts and everything. But you know, between takes, they're putting on big coats and everything like that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it was it was an interesting. I mean, it, it looks great on screen. But I think it was a bit of an ordeal for them to be down in there every day in this cold and it was damp and the ground is uneven. So when they're walking around, you could quite easily trip and all this kind of stuff. But uh, but you get great production value from it.
1: Oh, and speaking of that, I would like to I would like to praise the the choice that Warren made to shoot this in scope, to shoot this widescreen. Uh, yeah. I, I think he was he was absolutely right to make that choice because it does add to the look of the picture in a lot of different ways. It gives it a very cinematic look even when you're watching it on a screen at home. It's, uh, it, there's a, there is a difference. Um, it's, it, some people may not perceive it as such, but believe me, in some way or another you do to, to have a wider image than uh, just your television is normally used to. It's, it's, it's a different effect on the viewer. And I think Warren was right to push to do that
2: yeah I mean this film um, it is his most cinematic, I guess from that point of view, and it was certainly the film that had the best distribution um because it had all this money behind it. it had run run ashore behind it. yeah, and so, yeah, I think making it look as cinematic as possible really paid off and made sure that it got a lot of distribution, even though ultimately it ended up on video where it would have been cropped um, <laughs> true. And a lot of people probably saw this film for the first time on VHS. Back in the '80s, but but yeah, you're right. You're seeing it now in its full widescreen, it does look great. Yeah, and that w-
1: once again, this Blu-ray does the film a, a, a very good service in that respect. Okay, uh, the film starts to re- start starts it, at this point. We're going crazy with Sandy running around, killing everybody in sight. Mark uh, contacts Sandy by radio because they don't want to be in the room with her. Of course, she's murdering everybody. Uh, he's in the control room. He's trying to distract her while Kate and Gary leave to arm themselves with chainsaws from a storage room. Uh, this ruse is uncovered and Sandy harpoons Gary outside the airlock, breathing the planet's toxic atmosphere to no ill effect as she des- devours his flesh. And that's actually a pretty creepy sequence because that's been, uh, that, that, that blows away uh, a wonderful uh, precept that we've had about this planet all along, which is it's too cold out there to survive. And of course, the atmosphere is unbreathable and having her walk out there, you know, with no environment suit and no air supply and not being harmed is the, the a very intense cinematic way of demonstrating that clearly this woman's b- entire body chemistry has been altered by what's yeah, happening
2: to her. Yeah, there's also this quite a nasty sequence somewhere amongst all this chasing and killing when he discovers who is it that's still alive? Is it Gary? Before he gets killed, I think. He's um, he discovers that it hurts her if you hit her in the bump, and yeah. so at one point he gets yeah he kicks her to the ground and he steps on her bump. Uh, in, in, the, in the pregnancy, but you yes. know from the point of view of the story, he's got to keep her down because she's an evil alien who's trying to kill him. But obviously, it doesn't it doesn't help with any accusations that you might make towards this film of misogyny or anything, <laughs> anything like that. But uh,
1: having just recently watched a movie or rewatched a movie where I would definitely have to level misogynistic charges at it. uh, This one never struck me as misogynistic because there are so many female characters. And while yes, uh, one of the, one of the female characters does become, you know, inseminated against her will and turned into a murderer. A lot of her victims are women as well as men. I mean, every, every man on screen gets murdered before the end of this damn picture. So, So there's a, Um, yeah, I've never seen this as, uh, misogynistic. I've also never comprehended some of the attempts to claim this as some kind of, uh, film that can be read as a feminist from, from any feminist angle. It just doesn't work in that, in that way as well, because I just don't think it's well thought through enough to hold up any of those ideas without stretching it to the point where everything's just going to break and collapse. But the, um, I would, not, I would never call it misogynistic. I would say yeah. that, um, okay, well, let's say this, the birth sequence when she finally gives birth to the twin alien creatures, uh, that's a painful sequence to watch. And not because of the reason, not for the reason that you would think, because it's not yeah. the graphic nature of the sequence that makes it painful for me. It's the... Uh, it's the noises that that Judy Gieson makes. She's very effective in that scene. She's very good in the movie, yeah. period, let's be honest. Um, she and Stephanie Beacham and a couple of the other actors are quite good. There's only one actress in the film that I would point to as being really pretty terrible. But uh, her acting during that sequence, during the birthing sequence, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to listen to. Let's put it that way. <laughs> she's she's yeah, harsh. I
2: don't, I don't know about you. I had to keep... I had to keep turning the volume down.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's very effective, and it and what I, there's a part of me that feels like, well, it didn't have to be that damned effective. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But uh, it is it is unnerving and and, it's in most, a weird way. It's more unnerving yeah. than the insemination sequence.
2: And it's mostly held on her face as well, which is interesting. It's it's just a big close up of her yeah. face screaming, um, and she there's a lot of that in this film. Close ups of her face screaming. Um, one thing that, and I think I, that
1: maybe that may be an instance of an of a director knowing that you know you've got a good actress yeah. who can pull this off. Let's just let's take advantage of it.
2: Yeah, and it's um, thankfully we only get a brief shot of the birth itself, uh, shot very discreetly. Yeah. But one one thing I noticed this the other night when I was watching the, f- um, I watched the first half of this film a couple of nights ago, and then I finished it this afternoon. I was actually watching it in a classroom this afternoon. Um, which is probably, that's probably why <laughs> I had to keep turning the volume down because I'm actually at work at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but um, I noticed every time she screams and the camera is at such an angle that you can see all the fillings in her teeth. Yes, yes, and I noticed that too. That's really funny because you get that a lot with um, 70s movies, even period films, you know, like you be watching some 17th century bar wench and she'll throw her head back and scream and she's got all these silver fillings it's like everybody everybody in England in the 70s and 80s had silver fillings and it kind of spoils it kind of spoils a lot of films spoils
1: the period detail
2: yeah yeah so i guess in the future we'll all have to go back to silver fillings uh, <laughs> according to according some according to this anyway. film, yeah. so she's there's a lot of screaming and a lot of close ups of her teeth and i can just say i don't want to go into too much detail but having being present at two births uh, myself that i the only thing i would say is that this film makes it look too easy
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i kind of know where you're going with that
2: <laughs> uh. yeah but aren't they
1: cute her twins <laughs> de- define de- d- define cute for me really quickly
2: <laughs> i like how when you see them they're lying there in full shot with legs and arms kind of wiggling around, like they're lying on their backs, waving their limbs around, it's pretty funny. I I believe that he he said that he made three sets of these twins, depending on what, for what shot they were being used for. There's like an attack twin, and there's a a lying as a baby twin, and I think there's a being carried in a bundle twin as well. So there's like three separate dolls that they made to represent the twins. And they do look a little bit like Yoda, I think, if you sort of squint. I can see... <laughs> if you squint. Yeah, yeah a little look, bit, yeah. They look like the offspring of Yoda. Yoda, yeah. Uh, uh,
1: uh, the offspring of Yoda that he wants to forget is a spring, br- is a spring break liaison with <laughs> someone that he met once at a bar. Yeah, probably that, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, he, he had an unforgettable date with Jabba the Hutt's sister. <laughs>
1: oh man now, there's an image I'll never get out of yeah. my
2: head yeah those were some serious big goggles that night
1: uh well I did want to before we go too much further I did want to <laughs> I've te- I've I've teased this out and I just I have to say I do think that uh, the actress who plays Holly uh Jennifer Ashley um uh-huh. have to you know have to take credit she's an American she's originally from Pennsylvania she's terrible I <laughs> mean she's right. just She's not good at all. There are a couple of other.
2: Is she the boss? She's like the one in charge, or is she?
1: Yeah, yeah, she is.
2: Okay, I thought the worst actress was. Um, is it the one who plays Sharon? She's the one who's helping the, helping the doctor.
1: Yeah, she's not is great the either. She, but she's because, the, but because Jennifer Ashley's character has so much dialogue, yeah, um, and is on screen so often, either giving orders or delivering dialogue for some other reason. It, it's she's just awful man I mean she's terrible and i hate to put it that way i mean she's very beautiful um and she appeared in beauty pageants early, you know earlier in her life but at the same time man she just she ain't got it man she needs a lot more classes and <laughs> this when you look in this film it's just like oh uh, no no, yeah. no no go I'm back just, to thinking like, looking at
2: her looking at to see what else that she's been in well she was in and, the pom-pom um,
1: girls now the pom-pom girls hey Perfect film for this you know, she doesn't have to worry too much about you know projecting or anything like that. It's good. She's just this does not work. So
2: she's actually she's in fans of the paradise. I didn't realize that. Uh, I think she just got cool. a
1: really small role as a groupie yeah. in that. And I'll be um, honest, I don't remember her from it.
2: Chained Heat, that might be her biggest credit, possibly. <laughs> That's a classic. And she's in that Brazilian shark film, Tinterrera.
1: Yeah. Is that Brazilian? Yeah.
2: Oh, i thought, uh, it, was me- I thought yeah. it was
1: mexican actually yeah. or is it
2: oh yeah. yeah it might be uh anyway whatever it is yeah so she's she didn't do very much oh yeah you're right mexican okay shocking uh <laughs> yeah it's interesting isn't it and she's it's great that she's a good part for her in this film but like you said it's a lot of dialogue that perhaps they could have cut out
1: or given to someone else to, it, say given to someone
2: I mean, I'm su- I was surprised that Stephanie Beecham wasn't the one in charge, to be honest.
1: Yeah, she's well, I mean, she has a lot of dialogue, too, as the, you know, the documentarian. Yeah. Um, and like I say, she's great. She's perfectly good in the role. I mean, she's actually I mean, she. Uh, you know, you, you can look at her career and you see this woman knows what she's doing. Yeah. But um, so, you know, if you if you've only got if you've got two actresses and one of them good and one of them bad, it's like, I don't mm. I, What do you what do you do at that point?
2: I would have bought Stephanie Beecham as being the person in charge more than a kind of lesser role that she appears to play in the organization, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. That's true. Yeah.
2: Well, okay, at this so point, anyway, where, have we, where are we oh, in yeah, the story? Well,
1: um, that, that, yeah, that, 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 at this point, um, proved that uh, Sandy's proved that she's can breathe the uh, air outside and she's killed off a couple more people. Now, while preparing for some kind of final confrontation, Mark stumbles across Sandy's Newborn hybrid twins that she's, you know, you know, left behind after the birthing sequence, so she can go kill more people. Uh, he leaves them with Sharon as Sandy uses more explosives to blast through the control room door and proceeds to destroy all the equipment inside. Uh, Sandy injures Kate with another explosive charge and then kills her. The fight sequence between Sandy and Kate, on my initial viewing, that was probably years ago my breaking point uh that was the moment at which i was just like they can't even competently <laughs> stage a freaking fight between two actresses it it was it's so inept and it was it was rather gratifying to hear stephanie beecham talking about staging that that fight between her and judy jason and how neither of them were very good at it and yeah. and we're just try, they were trying their best but they they, they knew they weren't very good at it and they just had to get it shot. And it's like, well, at le- you know, at least that's good to know. They knew at the time that they weren't very good at this. And so watching them flail around on screen doesn't doesn't make me feel like I should feel sorry for these these two actresses that I have a lot of respect for who just can't competent, competently convey a fight on screen. It's like, oh, OK, at least they were aware of it.
2: Yeah, and they don't appear to have been given. A, the, the, I don't think there was a fight coordinator on the set, unfortunately, yeah. which might have helped.
1: It w- would have helped a lot because there's just there, <laughs> at no point is any of the th- is any of the actual actions being taken believable. It's just very strange.
2: Yeah. So how does I can't remember now. I just watched it this afternoon. How does Kate end up dead? Um, what does she do to her in the end? I can't
1: remember exactly how Kate kills a, kills. I can't well, remember Sandy how Sandy kills, kills, Kate. kills Kate. I can't remember yeah. how that... Ha- I'll be honest, that's that's fuzzy in my head. Yeah. Um,
2: because there's so it, much death by this point, they're all starting know, to blur. I know,
1: it all starts to blend together a little.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> In kind of a last stand, uh, Mark strangles Sandy with a piece of cable. He returns to Sharon to find her dead with one of the twins biting her neck before its sibling launches
2: itself at him and kills him. And that's the end of all of that... Great architect, uh, archaeological dig that was apparently so important for science.
1: Yes, and then we cut to the um, the coda, which is uh, twenty eight days later. A xeno shuttle lands on the planet to investigate the loss of contact with the team. With the base in ruins and all members of the team either dead or missing, Commandos Corrin and Roy abandon the search for survivors and Shuttle Pilot Jeff radio Xeno Control to request clearance to return. The final shots reveal that Sandy's twins have stowed away inside the storage compartment on board the
2: Shuttle. Oh, spoiler. Dun, dun, dun. Now, is this the first time that we've seen um, a space pilot wearing a cowboy hat? You
1: know, I'm not sure. It has definitely become a trope now, but yeah. uh, I don't know of one earlier. I do have a vague memory of someone wearing a cowboy hat in the uh, rather crappy film Galaxina, the Roger Corman oh, yeah. production. Uh, <laughs> that I can't remember if that was before this or not.
2: Uh, and I was trying to think whether anybody's wearing a cowboy hat in um, Dark Star.
1: Oh, i don't think so but that's a that would be a good guess that would be that would not be surprising if someone
2: were but yeah it's quite funny a little extra tidbit for you the guy roy one of those two guys at the end the actor that plays him actually went on to be one of the main characters in game of thrones
1: oh wait a minute which uh, who is that actor
2: uh his name's robert Pugh, and he was is it uh, what's his name craster Character's name, yeah, he was oh, crass, He is, yes, I recognize him. He was crass him. during Game of Thrones, which he was quite a main character in season one and two, I think. So that's quite funny. I don't know about uh, any of these other people who went on to have successful careers. Obviously, Stephanie Beecham did all right, but uh, oh,
1: Stephanie Beecham was fine. Judy Geeson's yeah. career continued, of course,
2: yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, there you go. We've uh, just given away the entire film. So, so
1: if you don't want to see yeah. it we would now understand so
2: tell me why you don't like this film so much and whether your opinion has Um, changed because i know in the past you've been pretty down on it
1: well yes um when i first encountered this movie it was back in uh i think 2013 uh when i first watched that uh, anchor bay dvd and yes i considered it terrible as a matter of fact i'll quote myself uh not at length but just a little bit here I, uh, I wrote for my blog. I said, uh, "Slightly daft, sloppily written, and for the most part, acted as if the paychecks were late." Uh, <laughs> I called it one of the worst pieces of science fiction slash horror trash I've ever seen. Wow. Less a story, less a story than an idea thrown up onto the screen. It at least has the virtue of aiming low. A small budget ripoff of Alien, the film takes the subtextual concept of horrid creatures raping humans to implant their seed and places it front and center. In a better film, this nastiness would be a plus, but here it just barely keeps things moving along. Luckily, ample amounts of bloody violence is scattered about to keep things interesting. Now, I have softened from that rather violent take on the picture. but I do, I do stand behind some of the things that I will now read from this blog post from six years ago. Okay, uh, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure there was a script, I, i.e. pieces of paper with dialogue and scene directions typed on them. But they might have made the same film if the cast and crew merely huddled together each day and said, What sequence can we cobble together now? The characters are cardboard cutouts, the dialogue is banal when it's not being idiotic, and the sets are dull. Some of my favorite moments were when a line of dialogue comes out of nowhere to make, a, make some point that feels plot-related, vaguely. This is a hallmark of bad scripts, and in science fiction, these bits of technobabble usually stand out beautifully. So when Mitch the chemist proclaims that the strange crystals seem to have some kind of chemical intelligence, you're stunned by the non-sequitur craziness, but you just know that it provides a clue to defeating the nasty evil thing that shows up later. Except in this damned film, you'd be wrong to think that. This silly-ass line has nothing to do with anything that happens later. Nothing. I'm not sure if this is genius, sleight of handwriting, or just plain ineptitude. Just
2: tell us what you really think, right? Now, um, <laughs>
1: well, now, I do. Well, now, I will say that even in 2013, when I wrote this, uh, I did have some kind words. I said, to step back for a moment, I must give the movie some praise. The film is well shot, with the opening scenes colorfully showing the alien planet's landscape, This generates some nice, creepy atmosphere that the rest of the movie's claustrophobic cave set slowly dissipates. The direction, while never outstanding, is capable, moving the story along at a nice clip and hiding some of the sloppier moments. Before the film sinks to its eventual sad level, I felt a measure of hope in the bustling activity of the little group of of archaeologists. But when the killing started, the terribly choreographed fight sequences finished off my willing suspension of disbelief. I do give the film points for the overly gory murders, but the effects are hit or miss with at least one death scene descending into unintended humor. Now, I don't remember exactly which death scene that I was referencing at that point six years ago, but I do feel, years later, revisiting the film, I have softened toward it considerably. I still don't think it's very good. Uh, It is actually my least favorite Norman J. Warren horror film. Out of the five, it's the one I enjoy the least. Right. Um, because I think that there are there is so much missed opportunity. There's so much that is so poorly defined. There's so many roads that it could have gone down to be more interesting. And I keep seeing those every time I watch the movie. But, on the plus side, there are a number of things in it that do shine. And if I squint my eyes just right and concentrate real hard, uh, <laughs> those can make me happy. Yeah, um, I do. Like I say, his uh, the even Bloody New Year, which came out uh, six years later, which is a you know a low budget jumped up supernatural slasher film. Even I, I enjoy that even a little bit more than I do this, which is saying something. I think everybody would say that Prey and Terror and Satan's Slaves were better films than the, well, maybe not everybody. This one had more production value than those movies, but I think they had a better idea of what they were trying to do. And um, this one, even with the knowledge that there were, you know, whole pages of script having to be thrown on the ground and trampled upon because they had to get things done, uh, I still can't forgive its trespasses enough to feel good about the movie. It's kind of entertaining. I don't hate watching the movie. I just don't like it very much.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I I have a good time with it, but I guess... I'm a little bit biased, I suppose, but it's... Well,
1: where would you rate it? Where would you rate it in his... film? uh, If if you're just looking at his five horror movies, where would you put this?
2: Well, I don't know. Um, I've never actually tried to put them in any sort of order. Yeah. I like them all for different reasons, I guess. And I, I like this one because it's a British british sci-fi movie shot in some caves and i just think it's got some charm <laughs> <laughs> because of that it, in many ways it does feel like an extended it could be an extended doctor who episode because many doctor who sh- who's are just running around in, in a quarry or some caves or or whatever you know yeah so i i find it quite charming in from that point of view so i'm i'm less concerned with uh questions of quality i think <laughs> Um, so yeah I wouldn't like to try and put it in order I suppose I mean ultimately I think Norman will always be best known for Satan's Slave and Terror they're his two two sort of pinnacles of his horror career if you want to call it that Uh, and then the other ones are all just very interesting Um, so perhaps I would put it if I was going to put it in an order it would be below those two okay only because I think those two are much more original than this one even though Terror basically rips off Suspiria but because it's british it's kind of got a quite an interesting sort of comedic sensibility about it i suppose yeah yeah uh yeah i i just i don't i enjoy all of his films for different reasons i mean this wasn't even his first science fiction film he had done another one um three two three years earlier called spaced out which is in uh, in america it's called spaced out over here it's called outer touch
1: now i've never i've never seen that which was about Uh, i've never seen spaced out uh, what is it
2: so there is a spaceship with three uh is it three three beautiful women on board, and it crashes in a f- in a park in England a couple a young couple, an older man, and a younger man all get sort of come on board because they all witness this crash and then it takes off again, and they come from a planet with no men and so you know. <laughs> C- comedian the, the
1: the the jokes just write themselves. Yes.
2: Yeah. You basically you can write the rest of the thing yourself. <laughs> but what's interesting? One of the women that was in that film was Ava Cadell, who is now Doctor Ava Cadell, America's leading sexologist. Really. And I think she, yeah, I think she's on TV quite a lot over there, talking about sex. Doctor Ava Cadell. Holy crap! But enough in her former life she was a model and um actress and occasional porn star oh, really yeah so she's quite interesting i've interviewed her a long time ago um and she sent <laughs> me loads of she she sent me loads of naked photos of herself
1: <laughs> uh, and that's normally it's the male that's doing that to the female yeah. that's an interesting take on things
2: <laughs> yeah and another one of the women uh, was Glory, and who was in Prey? She's one of the two women in Prey. Yeah,
1: I really enjoyed and Prey. So she, yeah,
2: yeah. And the main guy in Prey, uh, Barry Stokes, he is also in uh, in Outer Touch, where he plays a guy. He's based, he's very similar to um, Christopher Reeve's doing Clark Kent in Superman. <laughs> Except obviously, but Outer Touch came before Superman, so, or was it before? When was Superman? Uh, Superman was, that was 78. Like 1980, wasn't it? Oh, was it 78? Oh, yeah. it's about the same time then, so maybe it was. But anyway, so yeah, so Norman had done this film uh, in a spaceship uh, with lots of sexual, comedic shenanigans going on. So in Seminoid was him doing serious sci fi, I suppose. But yeah, I like it. I don't mind it.
1: Well, here's the, here's the thing um, you know, in 2019, I'm looking at this movie with a, a, a much more forgiving eye in a lot of different ways and like i say i'm not I'm, i don't now consider it to be one of the worst films i've ever seen that that's a ridiculous statement to have made even back then <laughs> considering how many movies i've seen in my life but but it, my frustrations with it are are multiple and we talked about some of them as we went through it but i do kind of now especially with this Blu-ray presentation. Like I say, I've not done any kind of comparison between it and the old DVD that I have, but there's there's something about being able to see it this clearly that, yeah, occasionally it shows some of the seams and it makes some of the sets a little more rinky-dink than they may have appeared, say, on VHS back in the day. But it also... Those flaws, and this happens a lot with movies for me, those flaws and being able to see them actually makes me feel a little more kindly toward the film. And yeah. now, years later, re-watching this movie for you know the second or third time, possibly the fourth time in my life, I'm looking at it now and yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated by the things that I've spoken about already, but at the same time there are a lot of things in the movie that I kind of get a lot of joy out of. There's a a bizarre kind of unpredictability to what they're going to do. The characters are so flimsily drawn and so thin that it's, yeah, they're obviously just there to be killed. I mean, that's why we have such a, such a large cast, is we need a lot of victims. And in a way, that's fun because if you've never seen the movie before, and I have to say, even though I had seen the movie, I didn't remember, for instance, that Victoria Tennant gets killed off so quickly. And it's a bit of a surprise yeah. because I know her from other things, and it's it's unexpected. And there are a number of points in the movie where unexpected things happen, even though I have seen the movie before, I just don't remember them. And I think that says something about the structure of it and the way they've done this the way this they put this film together, in that there's a number of things that come out of left field. They're not they're not ridiculous things. They're just things that you figure will eventually happen because you're in a horror movie. You just don't expect them to happen the way and in the order in which they happen. And also, I'm much kinder now to uh, Norman Warren and the the direction of the picture. I think he actually did a damn good job with what he had. There's a lot done and accomplished in this movie. Yeah, that. Yeah, I already knew they were shot in these caves and it was, you know, a ridiculously difficult shoot with, you know, a lot of dampness and cold and all this, that and the other. But then to learn that, you know, he had to get incredibly inventive with his crew to be able to shoot a lot of the stuff when they went back to the studio to finish up. That even makes me like the movie a little bit more and and give it just a little bit more of a of a of a thumbs up in a weird way, because. That did not occur to me when shooting it when I was watching this film at any point, no matter how many times I've seen it now. It didn't occur to me that this was being done under really strange, difficult, you know, circumstances that made, for instance, certain choices that I took to be artistic. Actually, things that were forced upon them by the facts of what they had to do uh, the shot. Um, Yeah, he's he's. uh, a very good filmmaker to have been able to get on screen what he did. I will go to my grave wishing that he'd had another 2 months of pre-production time <laughs> to to shore the script up and make it more interesting. Yeah. But uh I can't hate this movie anymore. Um, I don't love it, but I don't hate it. It's a valiant well, it's a valiant attempt.
2: Yeah, that's that's progress. <laughs>
1: maybe in 10 more years <laughs> when yeah. it's being v- VR I, uh, projected onto my retina. I'll love it. Who knows?
2: Yeah. The the older I get, I mean, the more I find myself being quite kindly towards pretty much any film. Like Making a film is really hard. Yeah. And I think you have to give people a break a lot of the time because it's such a hard... Getting any film finished is like a miracle. True. So you can, I, I find myself be quite generous towards anything really pos you know nobody sets out to deliberately make a bad film um except possibly adam sandler (laughs) and
1: (laughs) i'm in complete agreement there
2: you know so even when films go wrong they were really trying and i try my best now when i watch stuff to to see it from that point of view and try and appreciate what they were going for even if they don't quite reach what they what they were trying to achieve
1: i agree with you i agree with you and in the end, I'm really happy that you wanted to do an episode on this uh, on this film, because when you first mentioned it, I was completely scoffing and going, oh, he can't be serious. Not that piece of garbage. <laughs> but you forced me to go back and rewatch this movie. And I would have probably picked up this this indicator box set of his movies, of his horror movies, I should say. I would have probably picked it up anyway, just because of the the, the real affection I have for Satan's slave prey and terror. Mm. You know, all the extras and as as soon as I knew you were involved, I thought, well, I mean, I, you know, I've got to I've got I've to gotta read what whatever he writes about this and having all these extras crammed onto these movies that I do like and, you know, setting a setting in Seminoid to the side, whatever. But I got to say, um, I, I don't know how many I don't know if anybody can actually buy this thing anymore. Uh, They're only made six thousand.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's sold out yet, but it won't be
1: long. I wouldn't have thought. If you have any, listener, dear listener, if you have any interest in this, I do recommend this package from Indicator. If you've got uh, All Regions capabilities, or if you're British, it won't matter, right? Uh, but if you've got All Regions Blu-ray capability, these these discs are packed. I mean, just packed with extras. I've only gone through a portion of the extras on just the Inseminoid disc. And the book, uh, and there's like, there's a, what is with these, there's like lobby cards and a poster. What is, there's a lot of stuff yeah, stuffed into this box set.
2: It's really great, and I should just say that actually these discs are all region free, so you don't even need to have a multi region blu ray player. you can, oh, I, are can they? Get it yeah
1: I did not know that but well, there you go Americans, you don't even have to have a fancy Smanche player yeah. so
2: but these indicate have you got any of the other indicator box sets yes, a number they're of so good. A,
1: a number of them, yes, they're very good,
2: yeah and they've got a new another hammer one coming out hammer volume 4 is coming out next month.
1: Oh, I know, I'm very excited about that. I've got one of the previous yeah. hammer sets. I've got their William Castle set. Gosh, there was one other. And now I can't remember what it is. But yeah, I, Indicator
2: is a is a yeah. British Blu-ray company that I'm very pleased with. Yeah, they they they're only they're quite recent. They just sort of appeared out of nowhere about 2 or 3 years ago and they're doing some amazing stuff, so uh yeah, these box sets are wonderful kind of collector's items. I think a lot of people buy them because they're collecting all of the sets, even if they're not necessarily fans of the films. So that's well, why I if didn't you...
1: pick up. I didn't pick up their Harryhausen sets because I already have, you know, really good Blu-rays of them that were issued here uh, in the yeah. States. Oh, that's good. Then. And yeah, I, I, I kind of wish I had in a way. But I mean, they didn't have anything on them that wasn't on the sets over here. So I didn't oh, do that. But, yeah, know. fair
2: enough yeah no it's great i'm I was, I'm pleased to have been involved and uh, I'm obviously partly because they paid me in box sets so there was <laughs> there there was this great day when this massive box arrived, and I had to go and collect it from the post office and it was so heavy and it was full of indicator box sets so that was a great day
1: well, if there's any of those that you feel that you don't want, uh, let me give you my address <laughs> okay <laughs>
2: So perhaps we could just finish off uh, with this. I've just noticed this on the IMDb that it's listed on various lists, this film. Uh, space sci-fi, space horror movies, 80s sci-fi horror movies. And then it's listed on, on a list called not recommended for pregnant women or new parents. <laughs> so maybe that should be also printed on the box as like a consumer advice.
1: Pro- probably a good idea.
2: Yeah. Don't watch this film with your significant other if she is expecting.
1: <laughs> Most assuredly not. Yeah. Adrian, I want to thank you once again for, for convincing me to, like I said, I probably would have done it anyway, but convincing me to go ahead and, and uh, sit down and go through in Seminoid with a, uh, a critical eye and a more experienced eye six years after <laughs> I wrote hideous, hideous, mean-spirited things about it.
2: Well that's my, it's my pleasure thanks for uh, for bringing me back on to to do our annual podcast
1: <laughs> we'll we'll keep doing these until uh, they once again until brexit and or whatever per- political weirdness happens in our in my country here yeah. uh, makes it impossible for us to speak and we're you know having
2: to take up muskets against each other that's right maybe we'll be in bunkers talking to each other
1: <laughs> over over illegal Skype
2: yeah. Well, hey, happy Halloween.
1: Oh, thank you. Happy Halloween to you. Is that, Do you yeah. have much of a Halloween tradition in your home over there?
2: Oh, yeah. Every year. Well, th- where we live uh, is very popular for kids doing trick-or-treating. So um, excellent. We the doorbell rings all night until we run out of suites, and then we have to put a sign on the door saying that we've run out. But I've now started this uh, cult film club, so i'm doing a halloween screening this year so i actually won't be at home for most of the evening but we're we're screening the the lost boys uh at my local theater and i just checked this morning and i'm already on over 110 tickets sold which is pretty exciting
1: what's the capacity of the theater uh
2: 300 (laughs) so i'll be good deal i'll I'll be all right but yeah i'm I'm very excited i've been running the cult film club um i started it last halloween and then we had regular monthly screenings this year. But the most I've ever had is about 50. So uh, I'm very excited to have more than 100 people come to my Halloween party. So uh, this is going to be a good one. I've got to get myself a good costume.
1: <laughs> well, uh, when you when you uh, decide on the costume and when you're in it, uh, post some photos. I really want to see that.
2: Oh, there will be photos. Don't worry. <laughs> and hey, e- even if um, you don't live in the area and can actually attend my... Screenings. If anybody wants to check us out on Facebook, uh, just look for the Cult Film Club. Um, probably Eastbourne, which is where I'm based, and uh, with, there's plenty of talk on there about cult films and upcoming screenings and what people think about stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm trying. I'm keeping the uh, cult film love alive on the south coast.
1: Well, in the uh, show notes for this, I'll post your uh, your Twitter address so that uh, people can follow you on Twitter and and get updates that way as well.
2: Yep. Cool. That's me. retro ramblings on most social media platforms.
1: Excellent. Thank you once again, Adrian.
2: (laughs) Okay. Thank you. It's been fun.
0: To my
1: surprise He did the the monster mash
0: mash. It was a graveyard smash
1: It caught all in a flash
0: He did the monster
1: mash A laboratory in the castle east
0: To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from the
1: humble abodes To get a jolt From my electrode And then the monster mash mash. It was a graveyard smash It caught on in a flash It was the monster mash The zombies were having fun
0: The party had
1: just begun
0: the guests included Wolfman Dracula and, and his son but The scene was rocky while
1: we digging the sound
0: Eagle on chains backed by his baying hound The coffin bangers were about to arrive With their vocal group The Crip Kickers Five Oh, they played the Monster Mash, the monster mash. It was a great smash they the mash.
1: It caught on in a flash it was the Monster Mash uh, Out from his coffin Drax's voice did ring
0: It seems he was troubled by just one thing He opened the
1: lid and shook his fist And said Whatever happened to my travel in your twist it's now, the mash. it's now the Monster Mash
0: And it's a graveyard smash It's gone on in a flash now the Monster Mash uh, now
1: everything's cool Drax a part of the band
0: And my Monster Mash Is the hit of the land For you living This mash was meant to
1: When you get to my door sell them the rhythm, rhythm coffin sent then you Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash The Monster Mash Into my graveyard smash Then you can you mash get You catch on in a flash The Monster Mash when you do my monster match, Monster
0: Monster match, Monster Monster match, Monster Monster match, Monster Monster Monster
2: And so Rod has now gone to answer the door. I'm going to keep recording in case uh, it's something terrible at his door and we need to use this recording as evidence. So I'm going to give a running commentary as Rod goes down the stairs and opens the door to discover somebody in a William Shatner mask. And Rod thinks, well, you're about three weeks too early. So uh, he goes to close the door, but but then the William Shatner guy puts his foot in the door and Rod is scared, and then he realises that it's not somebody in a William Shatner mask, it is actually William Shatner, which is of course the scariest thing of all. And so he starts to speak William Shatner, but his delivery is... Erratic and Rod doesn't know what he really wants. So he leaves him and he comes back upstairs and comes back to the microphone and he's alive.